Hello, and welcome to Engage with Eagle Forum, a podcast to encourage the modern day woman in her vital role in shaping society. I'm one of your hosts, Tabitha Walter, political director of Eagle Forum, and I'm joined by executive director, Kirsten Hassler. Hello, everyone. Today, we have with us Dr. Carol Swain. Dr. Swain is an award-winning political scientist, a former professor of political science and professor of law at Vanderbilt University, and a lifetime member of the James Madison Society. She is also the author or editor of nine books and has written numerous opinion pieces published in many national news outlets. Dr. Swain has received a BA from Roanoke College, an MA from Virginia Polytechnic and State University, a PhD from the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, and a MSL from Yale. She resides in Tennessee. Wow, that is a, a big list of accomplishments. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Swain. It's my pleasure. Thank you for uh, inviting me. Absolutely. Well, yeah, we asked Dr. Swain on the show today to talk to us about the dangers of revisionist history. This has been a growing movement that has rapidly gained traction, not only in our communities, but also on the national level. And one year ago, in August of 2019, the New York Times launched the 1619 Project. According to the Times' website, the 1619 Project is an ongoing initiative from the New York Times Magazine that began in August 2019, the 400th anniversary of the beginning of American slavery. It aims to reframe the country's history by placing the consequences of slavery and the contributions of Black Americans at the very center of our national narrative. Dr. Swain, can you please tell us a little bit about the motivations behind the development of this project? I can tell you, first of all, that the project is misnamed in the sense that it argues that America was racist from the founding. And so it's always been a systemically racist country in all its institutions, but we know our country was founded in 1776. It wasn't founded in 1619 when the first Blacks came to America. And we can call them the first slaves because they came here involuntarily, but they were not uh, lifelong slaves. They came along with whites and served as indentured servants. And they were released after seven years and they became the backbone of free blacks in America. And up until I believe 1640, Blacks served as uh, indentured servants who later um, went out into the community. Some of them owned slaves themselves, but they became very prosperous. They learned skills. And up until 1661, uh, after slavery had become uh, permanent, uh, if a slave converted to Christianity, they were released. And so America's uh, true racial history is not so straightforward. And with the 1619 Project, it starts off, you know, with a revisionist history of America. America didn't exist, you know, in 1619, when you look at uh, the people that were here at that time. And with the 1619 Project, it's very problematic because it is based on critical race theory. And critical race theory divides the world into oppressors and the oppressed. 
And the whites, according to the narrative, if you're born with white skin, you are an oppressor and people of color, regardless of how wealthy or prosperous they may be, we are all oppressed victims. And that narrative being fed to young children would be very destructive in my opinion, because if you believe as they do that racism is permanent, that all white people are guilty of, of being racist and that um, people born with white skin are more privileged than you are, that they have a property interest in their whiteness that you don't have, that's not a good way uh, for people to, it's not very inspirational. It doesn't encourage people to strive for the American dream and it creates divisions between uh, blacks and whites and among whites. In fact, uh, the white communities across America are divided between the quote, woke whites who call themselves anti-racist and many of them are in Black Lives Matter or they're out there uh, with Antifa and they're engaging in destruction and violence against other white people. This whole thing uh, is connected in a way that's destructive to America. So that's a long answer to your question. <laughs> no, that's perfect. And you, I think you wind me up and I keep going. <laughs> <laughs> no, we love that. Um, I think it was a good overview to start with. Oh yeah. Um, you know, it's very confusing, especially when this is being taught to kids. And, uh, you know, just to be clear, we want students to learn about black history, both the bad and the good. We want Americans to know that slavery was and still is an egregious injustice. We also want black people to be celebrated for their humanity and their contributions and accomplishments. However, the 1619 Project does not do this. It, it pushes an extreme agenda where the black race is at the center of American history. And, and I think that in and of itself causes some confusion. Why do they feel the need to do this? And why is putting that at the center of American history harmful? I mean, there are a lot of things going on. And I know that Eagle Form is an organization, just like 1776 Unites, the organization that I'm part of, one of the organizations, and many of us are Christians. We have a Judeo-Christian worldview. And so we believe that God created one race, the human race, and that um, there's always been diversity uh, in creation. Uh, we also believe that people don't get to choose the race or family or social class or nation that they're going to be born into. And so this whole idea that white people are guilty because they happen to be born in the group, you know, uh, that we call white uh, and that they are responsible for the sins of their ancestors is very problematic. And one of the things that you said was, um, you know, slavery uh, was and is still wrong. Well, slavery uh, is very much, you know, being practiced around the world uh, in certain countries. And those countries, uh, Muslim countries, they're not being condemned uh, for the slavery that's ongoing. And we do know that in this country, we uh, hear about uh, the sex trafficking and every now and then someone escapes a home of some affluent uh, minority often where they have been holding someone in bondage. And so uh, there's a hypocrisy that underlies much of what is taking place. 
the agenda of 1619 seems to be geared towards disrupting our society. And I mentioned before the critical race theory where critical race theory is, co is connected to Marxism. Mm -hmm. uh, Karl Marx, you know, had this economic theory where the proletariat, the working class would rise up and they would overthrow their shackles uh, and they would turn against the uh, bourgeoisie. Oh, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but the, the uh, people that were um, in control of the uh, the means of production, the jobs, and they would overthrow and then they would uh, take over the society and we would have a utopia and live happily ever after. Well, that didn't happen. And so a lot of his students, when they uh, pondered why his economic theory failed, they realized that it was the culture. In particular, it was the Western civilization, the Christian culture that prevented people from rising up and doing what the theory predicted. And so they had an insidious plan that started, you know, in the early, probably 1930s, um, when German scholars from the Frankfurt School of Critical Theory came to America, set up camp at Columbia University, they trained teachers. And for decades, they have slowly uh, eroded America's institutions by going into the schools, the churches, the government, uh, the media, just every facet of American life, they've gone in with an agenda. And so what we are seeing now with the New York Times 1619 project is Marxism. They would like to overthrow America as we know it and to impose, you know, a socialist uh, uh, structure upon our country. And it would be the destruction of free enterprise and uh, America as we know it, but it also threatens to take away our freedoms under the Constitution. We see that already with the speech codes that started in the colleges and universities and now they're in secondary schools and also a lot of Christian institutions where political correctness, this whole thing about microaggressions and people may not know if you're not in academia what a microaggression is. It's really ridiculous because a microaggression is a perceived uh, slight. And so um, you may be behind walking, I may be walking behind you uh, and you don't hold the door for me. You know, you let the door slam in my face. Well, I'm black and uh, that could have been an act of racism. And with microaggressions, you're always searching for to see whether or not you have been offended or slighted. Mm -hmm. And so you're in a perpetual um, state of looking for offense because it's not overt, you're not sure, it's all in your mind. And so you're reading other people's behavior. And then in the colleges and universities, uh, they've had these um, demands on faculty to give trigger warnings before they uh, uh, teach on a particular subject or talk about something that may be in the news, they're supposed to kind of apologize to anyone in the environment that may be offended. And the problem that's taking place today, and I think this is very dangerous, is that we have this whole industry of diversity inclusion offices, and they're supposed to make everything equal in the workplace or the schoolyard or wherever they are. 
and they use the Marxism to do that. And so they have taught, they have flipped things upside down and they, uh, I mean, they're clearly targeting white privilege and whiteness so that young children are being encouraged to be ashamed of, of the race they were born into, what their ancestors may or may not have done. And in my opinion, that is discrimination. That is a violation of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, as well as the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Uh, in a rational world where you applied one standard and not double standards, it would be totally unacceptable to shame any child because of the color of their skin. But today, it seems to be accepted among a lot of people who know better to shame young white children. And I find that something that we should all stand up to, especially parents, because they do have rights. Yeah, it's particularly concerning for us because we have young boys and we think about these situations all the time. I, our kids are still toddlers, but eventually they're going to go to a school and be around peers. And um, we, we're going to have to be, you know, if we don't homeschool our kids, we're going to have to be very involved in what curriculum is being taught to them, how they're being perceived by their teachers and their peers. And, you know, frankly, we can't shield them from everything, but it it's still a concern that, you know, we might have to have a talk eventually about about how my white son is perceived among his friends. That's interesting because uh, a lot of black leaders talk about, well, we have to have the talk, the right. talk. And to me, you know, the talk is I, I taught my two sons to respect authority. Mm -hmm. And so if they were in an encounter with a police officer or a teacher or someone in authority, I expected them to show respect to the authority figure. That was the talk. Mm -hmm. And so you're telling me that white people uh, are, are going to have to have the talk with their right. children. That's interesting because, uh, you know, like I've not heard a white person say I had the talk with my children. Yeah. But if we don't get a handle on what's happening in America right now, uh, we will become increasingly more divided and there will be no unity. And the dangerous thing about diversity inclusion training is that it does the opposite of what it says it's going to do in the workplace or in the environment. It does not bring about any uh, camaraderie or, or, or unity. It turns people against one another. And you as a white person, it's not enough for you not to be a racist. Uh, and it's not enough, um, you know, for a man to support women, you have to be anti-racist. And what does anti-racist mean? Well, it depends on who you're talking with and the definition changes every day. And so what was acceptable today for you as a white person might not be tomorrow. Mm -hmm. The most important thing is we have to get a handle on this now. Otherwise, we lose our country. Right. So now we're starting to touch a bit on revisionist history. And it's a term that we've probably all heard, but it's highly politicized. And often you get an eye roll from someone who doesn't believe that there are actually people wanting to rewrite history in our own country. So in your opinion, Dr. Swain, what is revisionist history and how has it seeped into our nation's laws and policies? First of all, uh, it's not new. It's been going on for a number of decades now. And 
uh, I'm, I'm not sure the year this started, but you were a wee child, I'm sure. <laughs> but books like Huckleberry Finn, mm -hmm. you know, where the N-word is used, and uh, that's part of the story. Uh, there were efforts to take those classic books and go into those books and remove all the offensive words. And uh, so that is a, is a part of a, a revisionism. And then when Howard Zinn wrote his history of America, and that started to be used by uh, schools across the country, people were being taught at that time a revisionist history. And the argument is that, you know, history has been whitewashed because it was written by white people. And um, the revisionist history puts forth a different narrative. It's a total reinterpretation of what at one time, you know, the, according to the critical race theorists and the people that believe in what they believe in, you know, there are no absolute truths. There are no truths. There are no facts. Everything is subject to interpretation. And so we can reinvent a new history. And so tearing down monuments and markers and changing the names of schools and institutions are ways to try to attempt to revise history. I think it's very destructive because we should learn from history. And there was a philosopher named Santayana uh, he said, those who forget the past are condemned to repeat it. And there are horrible atrocities have, that have taken place in the history of the world and in nations. And it, as a Christian, if you read the Bible, we're reading about things that happened in ancient Israel. We're reading about other nations, the fall and rise of nations. Uh, we learn from the mistakes of other people by reading about their lives. But if you try to revise history, and you uh, whitewash it or blackwash it, you end up with uh, people just losing connection to how far they've come. And I, as a black person, I love uh, Booker T. Washington's Up From Slavery. I was born in Southwestern Virginia, not far from his birthplace. And in Booker T. Washington, we have a person that hungered for an education. And he, he uh, was willing to walk about 200 miles to get to Hampton Institute and to work as a janitor at night so that he could go to school. And he founded the Tuskegee Institute and he was able to become one of the most powerful black men uh, in the world, uh, you know, for, well, for his time. And then we still remember him, even though he's denigrated among many black elites today but what he was able to accomplish as a former slave and how he educated people. And he really stressed character. And he believed that uh, if black people coming out of slavery worked hard and they had you know, the right uh, uh, character attributes that they would, and skills, that they would be accepted by white society based on their skills. And he supported you know, integration. He was not a big proponent of segregation, but he believed that uh, who our character and who we were as black people, we would rise because of that. And I think that that has been the case in America, that America has been a land of tremendous progress. And I myself was born in 1954. That was the year of the Brown v. Board of Education 
decision that desegregated public schools across America. Uh, they didn't desegregate all at once. It was the late 1960s when schools desegregated around me. But I watched the passage of three major civil rights acts and I saw opportunities open up for people like me. And at that time, all we wanted was an opportunity to prove what we could do with the 1619 project and the narrative that they put forth, this, this, the society is so racist that it doesn't matter what you do, everything is stacked against you because systemic, <laughs> struggling with that word that rolls off the tones of all the leftists so easily, systemic racism. Um, I saw institutional racism fall. I saw that fall. And what was left was, you know, individual racism that people might have, but our government in America and its institutions were not based on systemic racism. And I saw that for people who worked hard and were willing to play by the rules of society that applied to everyone as far as overcoming poverty and circumstances of their birth, there were uh, enormous opportunities. And I believe that there has never been a better time to be black in America, except for the fact that the black leaders that have had power and they've benefited from the system, they're sending a very negative, false, destructive message to young people. That is problematic because when they're doing that, they are removing from young people um, the knowledge and know-how that they themselves use to reach the, the places where they are in life. Mm -hmm. Well, that's that's really interesting and you know it's it's almost like if if a black person speaks out against these things that you know keeps infiltrating our media and the narrative right now um they're really attacked by um by the elites and you know since this the launch of the 1619 project many historians, including black historians, have stepped up and said, you know, this is very false. We should not be teaching our kids this. Right. But, um, but the pushback has been ignored. One of the project's main contributors, her name is Nicole Hannah-Jones, and she went on to receive the 2020 Pulitzer Prize for commentary. You think that a piece of work that is historically inaccurate wouldn't receive this high praise and acceptance. So why is it not well, the case? Let me, here's the case is that uh, the MacArthur Genius Award, the Pulitzer Prize, and just numerous prizes that are awarded uh, every year, the, the left wing, the leftists control those prizes, so they give them to each other. And so that's how it can happen. It's not based on merit. It's based on, do you agree with their ideology? Mm -hmm. And so those prizes, they were once widely esteemed because they meant something. In fact, I have a book that was nominated by the publisher for a Pulitzer Prize. And um, uh, at one time, the Pulitzer Prize meant, you know, that you had accomplished something that was significant. Uh, nowadays, it's something that you hand out um, for reasons that are political. And I think she got it because like with this moment with Black Lives Matter, and all the chaos and destruction that's taking place in America, uh, white people with white guilt and power, as well as those that are Marxists that are just using black people. And I believe that with um, the Black Lives Matter movement, the, 
that is controlled by whites, but white Marxists in particular, it's a global movement. And the whole aim is to bring down America. And I think the best thing that we can do is try to educate as many people as possible about the connections to Marxism that Black Lives Matter founders, they have talked openly about being trained Marxists. And you might ask, what is a trained uh, Marxist? Well, if I read a book on Marxism, that doesn't make me a trained Marxist. That makes me a person that read a book on Marxism. And I might agree with that book on Marxism, but I'm not a trained Marxist. Trained Marxists suggest someone that's gone off to a camp or someplace where they actually uh, were taught how to put Marxist principles in practice to achieve a goal. And I think that's what you have with an organization like Black Lives Matter, that the naming of it was so strategic because we know that uh, it's a true statement that Black Lives Matter, they say that it's racist to say that white lives matter, but we know as Christians who value the sanctity of human life that all lives matter. And so it was very cleverly named. And unfortunately, there are many corporations in America that have bowed a knee to the movement and to the organization and to the 1619 Project as part of what I would call virtue signaling, where an action is taken to prove that you're not whatever you would otherwise be accused of, white people's way of saying, hey, I'm not one of them, I'm acceptable, I've done this. So there's a lot of virtue signaling and people that will put signs in their yards or signs on the windows of their buildings. In some cases that's being done for protection, but the end result is the undermining of America when corporations are giving radical organizations millions and billions of dollars to advance an agenda that would overthrow this country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I want to, um, for our listeners, talk about just a little bit about the Black Lives Matter organization. And and this is this is an extremist organization. It's not an organization that supports the black community in a productive and healthy way. And I was looking on their website yesterday and under the section labeled what we believe, some of the values they espouse include dismantling cisgender privilege. And just so you know, cisgender means that you identify by your biological gender and disrupting the nuclear family. Um, Some of the Black Lives Matter leaders have supported and even encouraged criminal acts to get their message across, like you've said. Um, This isn't an organization that is cultivating policies and changing people's hearts and minds that will produce a more united and peaceful society. It's, It's the kind of radical thought, like Marxism, that has allowed harmful ideologies that seep into our education system. And so, you know, it's, it's more than just a hashtag. We, we want to support the Black community, but Black Lives Matter organization takes it way too far, and um, it's not something that we want to see within our society. Mm-hmm. Well, I agree, and I was on the CNN interview with Ariva Martin that took place right after the five Dallas police officers were slain, and their... Um, deaths occurred 
after a Black Lives Matter rally. At the time, they were saying, you know, um, what was it, pigs in a blanket, uh, a frown in a blanket, or I can't remember the exact phrase, but it was about killing police officers. And I pointed out at the time that Black Lives Matter organization was Marxist and very destructive. And on CNN, I told the viewers to go to that website. And at that time, that website talked about overthrowing the state and it was far more extreme than what they have now. What you wow. just read is the sanitized, uh, cleaned up version of what they stand for. And most Americans, um, you know, they agree with the, the statement that Black Lives Matter, but they don't, they would not agree with the organization because that organization is not advancing Black lives. And so one of the things that I want your uh, viewers uh, and listeners to be aware of is that there is an organization called 1776 Unites that I'm a part of. And what we are doing is providing the true history of America, which has been a history where whites and blacks have worked together for change as Americans. And we focus on the, on the enormous achievements that black people have attained in America, even coming out of slavery. Some of them became multimillionaires. And it's not true to, uh, to believe that the condition of blacks today is attributable to slavery because coming out of slavery, blacks had a high marriage rate. Um, the crime rate was not astronomical that black people were attending colleges and universities that did not discriminate against them because of race. And there were always schools in the Northeast and New England where they did not practice a racial discrimination as they did in the South. And so blacks were making steady progress until the 1960s. And in the 1960s, that was when the Marxism pretty much turned the, the country upside down with the riots and the protests around the Vietnam War, the women's movement, the gay rights movement, the environmental movement. And those um, explosive movements followed uh, like clockwork, the removal of prayer and Bible reading from schools that took place in 1962 and 1963. So we have watched, uh, you know, the rise of no fault divorce and just dysfunction take place and a lot of it can be traced to the 1960s but blacks and whites i would say america americans were thriving until those changes took place and what we are doing at 1776 is telling the true story of america and it's something that i would encourage people if they want to know more about it to go to the website 1776unites.com uh, to learn about what we're doing and to read some of the articles written by scholars. Mm -hmm. And I, I can't stress this enough how, how um, good it's have to have, it is to have the 1776 Unites Project because, you know, as we were looking for background for this episode, I was looking at the Pulitzer Center after Nicole Hannah-Jones got her award. And some of the highlights that they highlighted of the 1619 Project include tens of thousands of students in all 50 states engaged with the curricular resources, including reading guides, lesson plans, and extension activities. Tens of thousands of copies of the magazine were shipped by the New York Times and the Pulitzer Center to students and educators at K-12 
12 schools, community colleges, and other campuses. And then five school systems have adopted the project at a broad scale. These include Buffalo, New York, Chicago, Washington, DC, Wilmington, Delaware, Winston and Winston-Salem, North Carolina. So it's safe to say that the 1619 project is being used as a curriculum in our schools and it's easy to be fooled and by the Pulitzer about, Prize. Just making black people feel mm -hmm. alienated, it's part of, uh, of why there's so much division in the white community too. And you have a lot of young people that are coming home to their parents and saying, you are racist, you're homophobe, you're xenophobe, you're all these phobes because they're getting it from the um, public schools, mm -hmm. the colleges, universities, and it's part of this Marxist agenda to overthrow America as we know it. And they're using our children uh, as a way to do that. And I am the author of a book that I think some of your listeners would be interested in uh, that's titled uh, abduction, how liberalism steals our children's hearts and minds. It was written in 2016, so it doesn't talk a lot about Black Lives Matter, but it does talk about this agenda that has been here for decades, that it has seeped into Christian as well as uh, not just the public schools, but private schools, and it has a very radical agenda, and that agenda is destructive to our nation. And people mm -hmm need the knowledge. Knowledge is power and they need the knowledge um, to be able to counter what's taking place. And until we can uh, gain control over the public schools and what's happening, then I do strongly encourage um, the homeschooling or education at strong Christian college uh, um, academies where the parents are actively involved and they know what's taking place. And I think the worst thing that those institutions can do is to hire a diversity inclusion officer. It sounds great. The language of social justice sounds wonderful, uh, but when it gets into churches and gets into institutions, it's Marxism, it's destructive, it brings discord, and um, people lose their institutions that way. Very interesting. I these are such great uh, pieces of advice for everyone to listen to. And we are so thankful for the 1776 project that brings a lot of hope, um, a lot of truth about our history. And Dr. Swain, you have been instrumental in fighting against the, the 1619 project and the narrative that is false about race. Um, and so we thank you so much for that. You have been a beacon of hope and uh, to Eagle Forum and a good friend and ally to us. Well, thank you so much. And anyone that wants to know more about what I'm doing can go to my website, which is B, instead of We the People, it's BeThePeopleNews.com. And uh, there's also another uh, website, uh, BeThePeopleNonprofit.com. And I would encourage uh, them to get involved in some of the activities. One of the things that we'll be doing in October is a national tribute to law enforcement officers. And Bob Woodson, the founder of the Woodson Center and the 1776 Unites mm -hmm. Consortium will be the keynote speaker for this national uh, tribute to law enforcement. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Swain, for being with us. We will list all of your resources on our social media. And so, so our listeners will have easy access to it. 
Um, this certainly was an informative discussion. For those listening to our episode, please be sure to subscribe, share with your friends, and leave us a review. You can find us on all the major social media outlets and at engagewitheagleforum.com. From your house to the state house to the White House, this is Engage with Eagle Forum.